right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Adam Drovetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. How about that? Thank you, Texas Tech. Taking down the Baylor Bears last night. And just like that, KU is two games up on everyone else in terms of the loss column, at the very least, in the Big 12. Now, it's it's kind of funny um, because you're rooting for Tech there. They get the extra loss. And then all of a sudden, they show at the end of the game. They're showing like the schedule remaining. And you can't help but look at it and go, oh, man, Tech might win out. So there's some pressure on KU. If you want to win the conference to yourself, you might have to do this thing with three losses. But last night was big, both for KU in the Big 12 race, obviously, and a race for a number one seed, which I do think the conversation about the race for a number one seed does kind of go back in line with the idea of winning the Big 12, winning it outright, because if you do those things in what has been a really good conference, like it's going to set you up really well for a one seed. But also Baylor is in direct competition with you for one seed, maybe Texas Tech, but they had a few more losses and didn't have a, a good non-con in terms of the schedule outside of like playing Gonzaga that they're probably not really in that discussion unless they were to win out, win the Big 12, and then win the Big 12 championship, and then maybe they vault themselves in. Um, but you know how crazy it is, too, looking back? The game in Allen Fieldhouse where, you know, and you can sit on this like, there's two sides of the fence here. There's the one side of the fence, which is KU should have never been in this situation. KU was up 70-58 to 58 with five minutes left in the game. It should have never gotten to the point where it was even in overtime, and clearly that shows that you know KU was the better team there. But also you could look at this and say, if Ochag Baji does not hit a crazy shot that ties the game against Texas Tech and sends it into double overtime, both Texas Tech and Kansas right now are sitting tied with three losses each. And on top of it, Tech would have the head-to-head 2-0. Now, obviously, that doesn't matter in terms of technically getting a share of the conference. It just would for the seeding purposes in the Big 12. But also, Kansas would still have a game at Baylor remaining, whereas Tech would be done with both Kansas and Baylor with the two teams tied at three losses. That shot by Ojag Baji quite literally could be the difference in this thing being a share, in KU winning it outright, in Tech not winning it outright. I mean, it is, it is remarkable looking back. I mean, we knew at the time Tech was a really good team, and that was very big to get that win. But now, even more so than ever, is that the case? I think when you look at the remaining schedules for both Baylor and Texas Tech, it's not out of... I don't know, minds that both teams could win out and finish the season 14-4 and four in conference play. Here's the remaining schedule for Tech. Now, this Saturday is, is their toughest game. This is the one they're going to have to pass. And, and you're going to sense a theme here that Texas, the Longhorns, have a heavy hand in determining who's going to win the Big 12 or 
Are multiple teams going to share it? Texas Tech plays at Texas on Saturday. Texas favored to win the game, at least by Ken Palm. I haven't seen like an official Vegas line. Probably won't come out till tomorrow afternoon. But Tech beat up Texas pretty good, 77-64 in the first meeting. Now, that was at home. That was a ruckus, wild environment because of the return of Chris Beard. But supposedly, a lot of the tickets being bought for that game are Tech fans. So I'm not really viewing this in a game that's in Austin, not necessarily a huge home environment. Not necessarily viewing it as a game that, you know, it's going to be heavily favored for Texas in terms of the fans. Um, I don't know what to think of that game. You have the big high of beating Baylor. Make a lot of sense to go on the road against a good Texas team and drop one on the road. But if they win that game, which even though Texas might be favored by a few, it is close to a coin flip game. They're Oklahoma at home. They're going to be expected to win at TCU expected to win Kansas State at home expected to win and at Oklahoma State expected to win so if Texas Tech beats Texas on Saturday that's the the indicator game to me I think at that point Tech goes 14 and 4 in conference play and again you still wanted them to beat Baylor because that guarantees the Baylor best case scenario can go 14 and 4 and that means that Kansas has one game that they can drop if they still want to win the Big 12 outright that means they have two games they can drop if they want at least to share uh, this Saturday, in my eyes, we're really going to determine whether KU is going to win it outright or not. Like I said, the Texas Tech-Texas game is on Saturday. KU's at West Virginia. If if we're ranking the most likely losses the rest of the way for KU, six to go, Baylor on the road in Waco is obviously number one. But like I said, even if Baylor and Texas Tech go 14-4 and four each, and for Baylor, here's their remaining schedule. TCU at home, at Oklahoma State, Kansas at home, at Texas. There's the big one again, Iowa State at home. Now, Baylor's is is tougher than Tech's because they have Kansas and Texas. And again, if Texas is able to hold serve at home against those two teams, then, you know, both have five losses, and then it's not even a conversation about will Kansas win the Big 12 outright unless Kansas goes on some epic collapse. But, you know, for, for Baylor... If they get through those first three, TCU at home, Oklahoma State on the road, Kansas at home, then all of a sudden they're they probably favored in the Texas game on the road, and, and that's a whole nother discussion. But nonetheless, if if both teams finish out 14-4, and four, which seems more likely for Tech than Baylor, I think at this point. For Kansas, the second most likely loss that they have the rest of the way after that Baylor game, you can probably pick nits. You could say the game at TCU. TCU is an NCAA tournament team. It's on the road. You could say the Texas game, it's senior night, and, and KU doesn't lose those games, but also Texas has beaten them three straight times. Chris Beard has won in Allen Fieldhouse before, did it with Texas Tech a couple years ago, and it's also just a good team in Texas. But you could also just say this Saturday. West Virginia has been one of the worst teams in the Big 12, so it's not necessarily from that, but you just struggled there. So West Virginia joined the Big 12 for the 2012-2013 season. That was the first season in the Big 12. I believe this will be season number 10 with them in the conference. Could be wrong with the math there. It could be nine. Um, West Virginia has a winning record against Bill Self, specifically in the games in Morgantown. Now, obviously, they haven't gotten one in Allen Fieldhouse, and there have been some crazy 
games that KU's had to come back to keep it going that way. But in the case of all the Big 12 teams, this is Bill Self's worst road record against the current Big 12. And there have only been two times. The other worst record is obviously Oklahoma State. They wanted Oklahoma State earlier this year. Uh, KU actually has a good opportunity this Saturday to do something they've only done two times since West Virginia joined the league. That's beat both Oklahoma State and West Virginia on the road in the same season. It happened in 2012-2013, so the Ben McLemore, Jeff Withy season. And I don't remember West Virginia being that great that year. 2019-20, it happened again. Would that make sense? Oklahoma State wasn't very good that year. I think West Virginia was just re-emerging to being kind of a competitive team after a down year the year before. That's all. It's only happened two times, which, you know, it's it's tough to win in the Big 12, so I don't, uh, like, it, it makes sense to a certain standpoint. But also, we've seen a lot of KU teams go 5-4, and 6-3, and three, maybe even 7-2 and two on the road in Big 12 play. And the fact that those two haven't lined up when, especially in the case of Oklahoma State, there hasn't been a ton of great Oklahoma State teams over the last decade or so. Hasn't happened that often. So I'm not necessarily saying this is the second most losable game of the remaining stretch for KU, but you could make a real argument that it is a lot for that reason. And I, it's going to be a ruckus environment, late night game, Saturday night in Morgantown. They're going to be all moonshined up, I'm sure. And that's the other thing. Taz Sherman scares you. Anytime you have a guard who's averaging like 18 a game, you just know at any moment they could go off. They could go bananas. Same for Jeff McNeil. I mean, we saw him go, what, 5-5, five, 6-6 five, six six in the first half in, uh, against Kansas in Allen Fieldhouse from three last year. So, like, they have those guys that can go for outburst games. Texas, taking on Texas Tech on Saturday. Kansas at West Virginia on Saturday. Baylor hosts TCU on Saturday. It's less about Baylor to me because of the fact that Baylor still does have to play Kansas, because of the fact that Baylor still has to play at Texas. I still believe very much so that the game between Kansas and Baylor in Waco is going to be the potential knockout blow. If KU loses that game, they can still win the Big 12. They can still win the Big 12 outright. But if KU wins at Baylor, they win in Waco, night-night, it's knockout time, right? At that point, you know, because that's what I'm saying here. KU can afford one more loss to basically guarantee that they win the Big 12 outright. And again, Texas Tech could lose to Texas on Saturday, and if that happens, then I'll probably switch it to saying they could lose twice because I think there's probably an okay chance that Baylor would lose at Texas or maybe to, to Kansas at home. But as of right now, if you can only win, lose one more game, but if you win your most losable game at Baylor, then you're not going to be expected to lose more than one between the collection of West Virginia, Kansas State twice, TCU twice, and Texas on senior day. So this Saturday is really big. All of a sudden, on the flip side, if Kansas gets upset by West Virginia, as we've seen happen so often, and it always hasn't been a great West Virginia team. I mean, a couple of years ago, which, albeit not a great Kansas team either in 2018-19, Kansas lost to West Virginia, which at the time, West Virginia was, I think, 0-5 in Big 12 play, and they beat Kansas. If Kansas loses this Saturday to West Virginia, and then, you know, Texas Tech wins at Texas... You're going to be sweating it out down the stretch, either hoping that Tech loses a game that they shouldn't, or Kansas is going to have to be perfect from there, including winning in Waco. 
And that's a tough ask. Now, obviously, you can still accomplish everything and, and win a Big 12, but share it. And that, I think, ties back around to the conversation about trying to get a one seed, which I do find to be very important. Doesn't mean you can't make a Final Four, win a title if you're a two seed. I've floated that stat before, though. 11 of the last 14 national champions have been one seeds. You look at just the percentages of teams who go to the Elite Eight, to the Sweet 16, to the Final Four. You know, it's not a huge difference, but the one seeds have a higher percentage than the two seeds. I'd rather be a one seed than a two seed, right? And so if you're splitting the Big 12 in a year where there are so many good contenders for a one seed, where, you know, Gonzaga and Arizona feel like locks at this point, it's hard to see Gonzaga losing at all. Even if they lose once, they're probably still one seed. They're not going to lose more than once. Arizona kind of feels the same way. You could see the loss more easily, but it's hard to see them losing twice. I think at that point they're going to get a one seed. Might be the same case for Auburn. That's a lot of competition for the last one seed between Purdue, Kentucky, Kansas, Baylor, whoever. So if you want your best shot at getting a one seed, and maybe your only shot at getting a one seed, to be honest, because you have the loss to Kentucky in there, you probably do have to win the Big 12 outright. So go take care of business on Saturday against West Virginia. Go only lose one game the rest of the way, or better yet, don't lose another game the rest of the way. And if you want a little more safety, then maybe Texas Tech will lose to Texas on Saturday as well. I think that's where I'm at, though. You know, we've gone kind of back and forth between whether 14-4 and gets a share of the conference or 14-4 and wins the conference outright. I'm kind of to a point now looking at both Texas Tech and Baylor's schedule, more so Texas Tech, but when you combine the two, it just increases your odds that one of them could win out. And unless Kansas wins at Baylor and Texas beats, or or Texas just goes on a run, and that's the other thing. Like, what if Texas beats Kansas and Baylor and Texas Tech the rest of the way? That'd be pretty interesting. I think if you want to be safe, 15-3 and is the magic number. 15-3, and I mean... We know for sure 15-3 and three wins the conference outright because they do both have four losses. But I think looking at the rest of their schedule, this isn't a situation where I see a murderer's row down the stretch for both of those teams where I sit there and go, well, both of them are going to go 13-5 and five or 12-6. and six. They're going to fumble some down the stretch. And even if KU loses two, even if KU loses at West Virginia on Saturday, even if KU loses at Waco, they're still going to win the conference outright. I don't think that's the case. And I think uh, beyond... You know, the win for Texas Tech of what it means for the Big 12 standings and the Big 12 race. I think it just further shows how good of a team Texas Tech really is. Mark Adams might have uh, moved himself in to the favorite race for national coach of the year this season. Now, as far as what I think Kansas will do the rest of the way, I'm sitting tight right now. I think 14 and four is the most likely. So uh, we'll wait and see. But I also think if you told me they're going to win on Saturday, I would change it to 15 and three. And that's not even necessarily that I'm picking them to lose Saturday. It's just it would be one less opportunity, one less opportunity on the road against a team you've struggled with historically, and one less percentage play chance that you could lose that game. So as much as West Virginia is at the bottom of the Big 12 table, this game is very, very important. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Big opportunity in store for KU. We'll have that game for you on Saturday here on KLWN. Pre-game 530, tip-off at 7 o'clock. We're going to take a timeout. We'll let you hear from Bill Self. 
He spoke with the media earlier today. We also have to get to our daily poll. Luke Fedlum is going to join us at about a quarter till four here. He is a uh, non-sports agent attorney who deals a lot with NIL, so we're going to get some more NIL scoops with Luke Fedlum. And then at the top of the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to be joined by Michael Swain of Fog.net 24-7 Sports. Uh, Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks, joins us at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to RCST on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Welcome back. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com. Joined now by a special guest, Luke Fedlum, who is a non-agent sports attorney, an NIL expert who has been making the rounds, talking with student-athletes all over the country and everything. Uh, Luke, there's there's been a lot of commitments we've seen of late, which I'm really interested in, where there's... I guess maybe it's it's not concrete that it's shown afterwards, but there's rumors about maybe a player getting X if he goes to such and such college. Uh, the NCAA has said that, you know, that part's not allowed, but in the same way that this opened up when the NCAA went to Supreme Court to begin with, do you think if they got taken to court over a player, basically if, if they openly said, yeah, I took this to go there, so what? And, and it went to court for that. Like, how do you think that would fare? Yeah, first, thank you so much for having me. Um, love having these conversations. And, and, and I think that if it actually came out where a player said, yes, uh, an organization was going to pay me to, to come there, um, I don't think it's going to be the same as what we've seen pre-name, image, and likeness, as long as, certain, as long as certain things are in place. And what do I mean by that? So if, if it's not the school, the school itself cannot say, hey, we're going to pay a student-athlete to come here. Uh, but what we've seen are these NIL collectives that are popping up at schools all across the country where it's a group of donors or alumni or boosters who put together a fund to create NIL opportunities uh, to be able to send payments to players for that. Um, so if it was an outside organization other than the school itself, and as long as there is a quid pro quo, as long as the student athlete is providing a service and that the organization then is providing the compensation because of that service, then I don't think that there would be any issues with that. I mean, that is quintessentially what name, image, and likeness is all about. Do you think these, I, I don't really know what to call them. I, I don't know if it's a you know collective or, or a group that basically the, the schools themselves are having, like here at, at KU, that's Jayhawk Ascend is the uh, local organization sponsored by the school or brought up by the school where it basically deals with all the NIL stuff from a group perspective. Is that beneficial? To the players, is that beneficial to the school? Uh, is that something that is, is good to have happen? Well, it's definitely beneficial to the school uh, from the perspective of you know, now you have a group of whatever you want to call it, fans, alumni, donors, boosters, etc., that um, are putting together or pooling assets to be able to uh, help in the recruitment and the retention of student-athletes. Now, they're not going to say, the school is not going to say, any school is not going to say that, that the, these collectives or these groups are created to help recruit student-athletes to a particular school, but we know the impact that that could have. Uh, but, but I think 
from a student athlete perspective, there's benefit in that you now have kind of a, a single source to go to, uh, or at least an initial source to go to, to, in order to find name, image, and likeness opportunities. I have the benefit of talking to student athletes all across the country, and one of the questions that comes up frequently from student athletes is, how do I get involved? Like, I'm not sure what I should do. Like, how, where do I go? And so from that perspective, having a, let's just call it a school-affiliated um, organization that's creating these opportunities for student-athletes, it, it could benefit the student-athletes from, from just from the mere fact of being able to identify where can I start to earn compensation. Yeah, you know, I always find it funny when, when like, this came down and you had some people talking about how, you know, but what are they going to – are they going to pay taxes and, and stuff like that? And and obviously that's a you know, important thing that happens, but I, I just <laughs> thought that the whole thing is so funny because I don't go around my neighborhood and just go, man, are you paying your taxes and stuff? It's, <laughs> I, I don't know why that is. But what is your biggest piece of advice that, you, as you mentioned, with talking with all these different college athletes who are wanting to get involved in NIL, like what is typically the biggest piece of advice? that you give them absolutely number one piece of advice is treat this like a business and that's one of the hardest things for student athletes because it's brand new right this is this name image and likeness is probably the most significant change to kind of the status or the ability of student athletes in 70 plus years right since since scholarships were first started being offered i mean so this is significant so this idea now a lot of student athletes just think about it from the perspective of money i just want to make some money but there are some when you have business opportunities right through name image and likeness you also have business responsibilities and those responsibilities include things like treating it like a business understanding what it is that you sign what contract you sign before you actually sign it understanding from a budgeting perspective how to manage your money one of the biggest challenges that I see is, let's just use, for example, if a student athlete had an opportunity, um, let's just say they hired a marketing agent to find them deals, and they hired a marketing agent, the marketing agent found them a $20,000 deal. Well, that $20,000 deal, in the, in the student athlete's mind, they just made $20,000. But in reality, there's a fee, usually 20% that the marketing agent is going to charge, so that's 4000 that comes out of that 20000 And then you've got to plan for taxes, like you said, because the IRS will absolutely find you, and they don't care whether you're a college student athlete or not. If you're earning you know, compensation at a certain level, then you should pay your taxes. And so now, if you set aside, let's just say, uh, eight to 10000 you know, 40 to 50%, just to make sure you have everything set aside to cover your taxes and not be at a deficit, you know, now you've potentially you pretty much spent or sent away, you know, up to $14,000 of that 20000 So if in your mind you're telling yourself, I got 20000 and you want to try to spend that way, you really don't. And so it's understanding the business that's so important. I'm always curious with, and especially now with the booming of the transfer portal and, you know, this really being the first year of NIL, I don't think we've seen this a ton. I mean, there are certain cases, you look at football, like, I don't know if Caleb Williams was, was getting a bunch of stuff with Oklahoma or anything, but... Um, I'm generally curious if if somebody has like an NIL deal with, say, a local business, and and let's say it's like a a two year deal or something or something that they sign into to do commercials for a couple of years or something like that. Which I don't know if that's happened or not. But then they decide to transfer in a year. <laughs> like, how does that mm-hmm. all work? Is there you know stipulations in there? Is is this becoming a contract thing where the players do have to basically get someone there that they could lose out on the NIL money after signing it if they transfer away? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, it's all about the contract. 
And this is, this is where, you know, as a, as a non-agent sports attorney, um, I, I am involved in these kind of contracts regularly. And so once some contracts include language that, especially if it's a local, kind of a local business owner, there will include language that says if, if, you, uh, if the student-athlete transfers or if they're no longer um, an eligible student-athlete at, you know, pick your institution, then that can trigger termination of the agreement. Because what you don't want to have is, like you said, and there have been examples of that where it's a multi-year deal potentially, especially on the football side, we'll see that, where we know the student-athletes are there for multiple years. Basketball, you could have your one and dones. But um, when you have a multi-year deal, if a student-athlete you know, transfers uh, to a local business owner, that could completely in, you know, take away all of the value of having that student-athlete as a brand ambassador or as an endorser of that local company. And so having language in there that if the athlete transfers, that it terminates the contract is is important for the business owner for sure i'm sure one of the toughest things when you have this in year one is trying to figure out what the proper value is whether it's your you know high level heisman winner athlete or if it's your you know just kind of starting offensive lineman who maybe doesn't get as much publicity and just trying to find what the right market value is for those people so uh, at what point do you think we're going to kind of find the center there at what point do you think we are going to find kind of what the the median is? And do you think it's more than what we're seeing now, or do you think it's less? Derek, you you hit the nail on the head. This is one of the biggest issues right now. And to be honest with you, um, no one really knows what fair market value is for college student athletes promoting a brand. Um, And and, and it's, it's hard because schools use their own individual platforms to be able to do this. There are some, some main companies out there, your Open Doors, your Influencer, and other companies that are out there um, as a platform that schools are using and others. Uh, but then also schools don't articulate, they don't publicize the deals that student-athletes are doing. So we hear about some of them, you know, kind of publicly in the media, but, but those are just, just a small handful of all of the deals that exist out there. So there's no one oversight body that could even tell you what the average or what the norm is, you know, in a singular, from a singular purpose. But here's what we do know. People have been using, companies have been using uh, celebrity endorsers, athlete as endorsers for years. And so there is a sense of what is, you know, what is normal or what makes sense. But here's the thing, college sports, a lot of things don't make sense. Um, And that's why fans, right, sure, for fanatics, sometimes you have donors and boosters and others who think, I'll pay a whole lot of money to a student athlete um, if there's if they continue to stay here and don't transfer and 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 they can they can support my brand because there's value for my brand but also I recognize that it's more than just value for my brand it's value to the brand of the institution and as an alum or as a contributor to the institution I want the institution to succeed so I see value there as well that's what makes this a, a lot harder to value and create a fair market value than what we see at the pro level do you think this opens the door at all for maybe another progression down the road of, you know, colleges see with the transfer portal and, and with players making money that maybe they could progress at some point to all of a sudden the schools are playing the, paying the players so that they can essentially get them into a contract, so to speak, in, in terms of, you know, here, we'll give you a two-year deal to, to come here for this and, and kind of do that, or, or do you not see those things being corollary? 
I, I think we could see something, potentially something along those lines. It's hard, you know, it's hard to say exactly what, what we're going to see, but and it, and it's, it's sometimes it's challenging to kind of talk about hypotheticals in, in that way. But I will say there have been lawsuits that are currently pending now and complaints currently pending now to try to classify student-athletes, especially student-athletes in football and men's and women's basketball, as employees of institutions. Now, with that comes a whole lot of other aspects, right, of potentially collective bargaining, right, unionization, et cetera. Um, but that conversation is most definitely happening. There are schools that are involved in some complaints with the National Labor Relations Board, um, and there are some um, actual, you know, kind of in-court uh, lawsuits currently uh, pending right now in different parts of the country along those lines. And we actually have, um, I believe it's Iowa, the state of Iowa, their state legislature has uh, legislation pending uh, to try to classify student-athletes as employees. So if, if you go down that path and say, hey, potentially we're moving towards this place where student-athletes ultimately get categorized and classified as employees, then I could think that we could potentially move into that place where, like you said, potentially the school itself is the one that's paying the student-athletes, and then we start to you know, have a lot of issues that can arise because of that. He is Luke Fedlum, non-agent sports attorney, NIL expert. You can give him a follow on Twitter, at Luke Fedlum. Luke, appreciate you coming on today, making some time. Appreciate it. Hey, Derek, absolutely appreciate you. All right, that was Luke Fedlum. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening in on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, and the KLWN app. One hour down, two to go. Michael Swain, 247sportsfog.net, joins us next. Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks, joins us later in the show. we still got some self-audio to play for you as lots going on in today's edition of a snowy RCST. Hope you're staying safe out there. Uh, we'll be back after this time out. Four o'clock hour, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Joined right off the bat in the hour by Michael Swain, of 24-7 Sports and Fog.net. Bill Self said at Hawk Talk on Wednesday night, or maybe that was Tuesday night. I've lost track of days. Either way, um, they're probably done recruiting this class of, uh, what would that be, 2022-2023, until maybe things open up in the transfer portal. And obviously, you never really know who's going to stay, who's going to leave for KU between both the draft and the transfer portal, but... Uh, let's start here. How impressive of a recruiting class this year does KU have compared to maybe some past years uh, just based on the high school hall they have? Yeah, I think it's really good, especially when you consider the recruiting level key's been at kind of since all the NCA stuff has really started to unfold. I think that you look at kind of the, the top end of the class, right? Grady Dick getting him uh, a wing out of Sunrise Christian, which as a program too, Sunrise Christian has really turned itself into a kind of a factory, which I think is good for KU long term that they're going to be churning out kind of high level prospects. But I think you look at Grady Dick, kind of he's on that five star cusp. Um, he's one of ours right now. And so we'll see where he finishes the cycle here in the next few months. But I think that's a really good get. Obviously, MJ Rice is someone that is highly regarded as well. Um, you know, there's a talk that, you know, if he makes it to KU, I think that's a big thing. Um, and again, that's just, I don't know. You know, we'll have to see how everything unfolds there. But then even you look at kind of the big men KU has with Ernest Duda Jr., um, that kind of, he kind of fits what Bill Self wants, where he's a 6'10 center, um, a very athletic, seems like someone that can be kind of a focal point of a Bill Self team. And then you look down even at someone like Zuby Ejiofor, 
and again, six eight, power forward type of guy. And another guy that you look kind of in the broader picture of this class, right? You someone that for twenty four seven sports, you know, we've got him ranked uh, number forty one nationally. Which I think if all four of your guys are in the top forty nationally, uh, I think that's pretty good. So I think in general, I think this is a really good high school class for Bill Self, regardless even of what happens with MJ Rice. Do you think that? Um of the group that is coming in, let's say MJ Rice, I, I know like you said, like we don't know what's really gonna happen there, but of MJ Rice, Grady Dick, and and uh Uday, like those are obviously the three big ones since they're McDonald's all Americans. How many of those do you think would be of the one and done variety? I mean, obviously you don't really know how the season's gonna go, but in terms of the perception before they come to KU. I honestly, when I think about this, and this is purely my perspective, I think of Greedy Dick as someone that maybe follows that Devon Dotson path, where you go for two years and then maybe leave. I'm not sure if Greedy Dick is necessarily coming into KU thinking, all right, I'm coming for one year, one and done, like a a Josh Jackson maybe thought, or an Andrew Wiggins uh, several years ago. I think he's someone that's coming in with kind of however long it takes us, how long he'll stay. And I think just looking at his game, his size, he strikes me as someone that comes in, can make an impact in year one, and then in year two can kind of be a really a huge focal point of a KU team. And so I think it all kind of also depends on the adaptation process for someone like him that, you know, six six, uh, about 200 pounds, um, physically, how is he going to adapt to a Big 12 that, you know, Bill Self talked today about how physical the Big 12 is. How is he going to be able to adapt to that? Um, we're not really sure. So I think you look up and down. I think MJ Rice would maybe be the one that you look at saying like, okay, maybe he's like of the one and done variety. Um, but I think outside of him, I think the other guys are kind of, you're looking at the, the two plus years and being kind of those, uh, not necessarily ready made, but guys that will take some time to develop, get used to the system and then be able to flourish. We're talking with Michael Swain of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net here. Uh, you know, right now, based on the seniors leaving and all the freshmen, and then if you include Ochai Baji, who, you know, that's pretty much a certainty he's going pro, which technically he could come back because the COVID year, but again, going pro, KU would be flush for scholarships. Now, that is under the assumption that also Christian Brown would come back and that David McCormick would come back because he could have another year with the uh, COVID error that Jalen Wilson, the way he's playing, who knows, maybe he'll go pro as well, that he all comes back. So um, obviously more scholarships could and, and probably will open up between that group of, of Brown, McCormick, and Jalen. But just in terms of, of it being flush before those decisions are made, did you take those comments from self in that the first place they'll look is the portal over adding more high school players? Uh, did you kind of take it? as it's dependent on those guys or did you take it as you know that it'll just be a transfer portal thing based on who we leave kind of one in one out i think it's very much more on the transfer portal side of things i know there's a big man who's man i can't remember his name off the top of my head right now that they're showing some interest in um but I think in terms of the numbers, you know, you look up and down the roster, right? So Mitch Lightfoot out of eligibility, Remy Martin out of eligibility, Jalen Coleman Lands will be out of eligibility. And like you mentioned, Ochabashi is probably going to go to the NBA, even though he has an extra COVID year. So that's four. That matches up with the four you have signed. Um, if anything else happens then, right, I think you do look for the portal. And I think Dave McCormick will have a decision to make if he wants to come back and do another run. Obviously, Christian Brown, Jalen Wilson, two guys that will probably end up testing the waters. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. 
Um, so I think it will be portal, though. I think you can look at um, behind Mitch Lightfoot, you know, center. Obviously, you've got Zach Clements and K.J. Adams as your kind of two big men. Obviously, can't forget that Cam Martin is redshirting this year. He'll be available next year. So I think in general, I think you'll see KU go to the portal and try and find guys that can make next year's team better and even the year after that. Maybe you go after guys with multiple years of eligibility left instead of going after the quote-unquote super seniors like a Coleman Lands or Earl Remy Martin. So I think you will see KU use the transfer portal in the spring. I think that's also just kind of where we're at with college basketball, college football, and college sports in general where teams are always going to be looking to improve by the transfer portal because if last summer showed us anything, I think that in terms of basketball, there's going to be plenty of talent that's looking to move around or move up. So I think that you'll see KU go portal uh, in the spring. Well, the position I'm most interested at, I mean, you could say center because of the fact that we know KU's had their struggles there this year at that position, and it's been kind of a trying to figure out what it is. David McCormick's had some really good games of late, and he's stringing some of those together. But even then, it feels like there's inconsistencies, and it hasn't been totally locked down. But then when you do add on you know, Uday, who's a McDonald's All-American, you add on Ejiofer, who um, I – you never know nowadays with power forwards when they come in. Like, are you going to be playing a, a modern day five? Are you going to play a four? I don't know. But basically, he's mm-hmm. a big man. And like you said, Cam Martin's going to be coming back. Uh, Zach Clemens, KJ Adams were both highly recruited guys, which I don't know if KJ profiles as a five long term, but at least in the near term, he is. Like, you have a lot of guys at that five position right now. So I, I don't know if that would be a spot, even though if you do find like a, you know, all American level guy or all Big 12 level guy, then. You go out and get them and figure out the rest later. But is the is the one position that I, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe the most transfer portal possible, uh, the point guard in your eyes? That's at least how I view it. I don't, I don't know if you view it the same way just because Remy Martin would be graduating and you don't really have another point guard who uh, kind of fits into that bill of being a, a scoring point guard. But also, at the same point in time, the way that we've seen – Joe Yesifu take a while to get going. Remy Martin not really totally get clicking with everything. There is another mm-hmm. part of me that thinks that Bill Self just doesn't want to go the transfer portal route for a point guard anymore. So I I, I don't know. How do you view that? Yeah, I think it's, it really is an interesting dynamic because I think we also know based on how the season has unfolded what Bill Self thinks of someone like Dewan Harris, right? Where he's going to play and he's going to play a, a bunch. So I think outside of that, then you're looking at someone that can provide spacing. And what have we seen about some of the really good key teams is that they've had kind of these two combo guard, point guard type of uh, runs and lineups. And I think that that's what Bill Self wanted to this season with Remy Martin and Juwan Harris. It just hasn't really worked out. So I think you probably would... I think there's room for another point guard if they are willing to come in and kind of be maybe a little bit more off-ball, right? Because you don't want Dewan Harris being off-ball a bunch because that creates maybe a little bit more spacing issues if you have a non-shooter at the five. So you're looking for kind of a more combo guard type of guy, maybe someone that fits a skill set of someone like Devontae Graham, right? A good three-point shooter, but can also handle the ball a little bit. Now, the question is, will someone of that profile come up that has uh, the right amount of eligibility left so it fits in the scholarship distribution for KU? Um, I think there's probably some, something that you got to think about there as well. So I think you are right. I think point guard and probably center are the two positions that I look at because if Christian Brown decides to come back and Sean Wilson decides to come back, I mean, that's your three and your four right there. And those are really two all Big 12 caliber type of wings. So then you're trying to plug in the roster outside of that. If Dave McCormick doesn't come back, is Zach Cummins ready to step in? Is Zach Martin some 
or Cam Martin, I should say, sorry, someone that can play the five at the Big 12 level, or is he a four at the Big 12 level? I don't necessarily know. So I think that the center spot and, and that kind of combo two spot are probably the positions I think he could look to get some more help at in the portal. If they're not recruiting this year anymore right now until things break and decisions and the portal and everything, how are things looking for the future classes right now with, with the recruiting? Any news of note there? Not much right now. We're kind of in that point of the season right now where a lot of these high school guys are going through their high school seasons and then visits will kind of pick up again here kind of in the spring and the summer. So I think we get a better idea of kind of the guys that KU is really going to prioritize here once kind of all their high school seasons wrap up. Guys are able to take more visits because for right now it's been a minute since KU's been able to host guys, right? You had some guys on campus for late night in the fog and then some more kind of there for the Kentucky game. But a lot of these guys are now kind of honed in on their high school seasons and it's tougher to get out and visit school. So I think we'll have probably have a better idea of that once the high school season wraps up and once again, kind of AAU in the summer. Switching over to the KU football front here, uh, they've undergone a little bit of a shakeup, I guess, in the coaching staff. Nothing from the coordinator positions, obviously. Well, I guess special teams coordinator, but not offensive or defensive. Uh, so what can you tell us about the new coaching staff and, and some of the new guys and new roles that you guys are filling into? Yeah, in general, I'm, I can't express kind of how impressed I am in terms of just the, the coaches that KU has. I mean, Chip Penega is starting there, coming over from Rutgers. I mean, that's someone that has a lot of experience coaching at the Power 5 level, and by all accounts, he's someone that on the field in terms of working with players is a really good developmental coach, but on the recruiting trail, uh, he's established himself really well, kind of in the Northeast New Jersey area, but he's also done a really good job of recruiting the Midwest when he was at Minnesota. And he's also done some stuff in Florida as well. Obviously Terrence Samuel is someone that has ties in Houston in Nebraska, and he's going to be the wide receivers coach and talking to some of the wide receivers. Kay's been recruiting. It sounds like they've really liked him. They like his knowledge. They like his willingness to uh, be loose around, them. He's not someone that's necessarily personality. I think that's so. I think those two are really uh, good additions. And then obviously, um, Taiwo Ono Tolu, there you go, pronounced right, um, coming in as kind of the defensive ends coach, where now he and Panay split duties there. I mean, Lance talked about a little bit where he felt like at times last year, maybe the defensive line coach, Quandre, maybe had a lot of guys to deal with where you got to watch, you know, two defensive tackles, two defensive ends and go through all of that. So I think now these split those duties up, I think that helps that position a ton. And of course, uh, Tyler is going to take over as a special teams coordinator as well with Jake Schoonover moving to more of a recruiting role. And I think that's a good position for Schoonover because if you talk to any kind of local recruit or any sort of high school coach around here, they really think highly of Schoonover and what he's done on the recruiting side. So he's going to transition to being a kind of a local recruiting director almost. Uh, I don't know what the exact title would be, but he's going to have a, a big role in terms of making sure KU's in a good spot with a lot of these local guys in Kansas and Missouri, which I think we've seen over the years that that has been an under-recruited part for KU football. And for them to kind of step up and really try and make that an emphasis, I think is a big deal. And I think it, it could pay off here in 2023. Obviously, a long way to go with some of that stuff, but I think it, the signs are positive right now. Any upcoming recruiting notes or other PWO offers, anything like that uh, to note on the football front? Not much on uh, preferred work on front. Visits will start up and here um, when March gets going, so then we'll see some more 2023s visit. 
Um, we'll see some more of the transfer portal guys visit. Um, there's the, obviously the Murphy twins out of North Texas that Kay's offered. Kay's also offered another offensive lineman um, whose name escapes me at the moment. But maybe they'll take some visits. Um, we'll have to see there. But visits start up here in March, and that'll kind of take us through all the way through kind of summer uh, and so that should be exciting, and I'm assuming we'll uh, get a good handful of kind of the local guys coming in for some spring practices as well. We're talking with Michael Swain of Fog.net and 24-7 Sports here on RockTruckSports.com. All right, Michael, we asked you a couple weeks ago that question about, you know, who goes further um, with the more, or the more NCAA tournament wins um, for KU basketball or more season wins for KU football. So I got a, I got a rendition of this one. KU women's mm. basketball NCAA tournament wins plus KU volleyball NCAA tournament wins or KU men's basketball NCAA tournament wins. Oh, oh no. Uh, so volleyball, you already know you have the two. <clears throat> oh, man, that's so tough. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I think last go... I saw Bracketology had the KU women's team as like a nine seed, so it'll be kind of a coin flip Ooh. first game. I think I still go. I'm still going to go K basketball. I, I have a weird feeling that this is the years where you go into March and not thinking much is going to happen. And I think that they maybe go to the Elite Eight, win the three games, um, a, a nine seed for K women's basketball. Oh, that's so tough. I, I think I do lean men's basketball. That's another really good question that I'm going to be thinking about here for another week. Mm-hmm. Oh man, yeah. See, it's tough too. If I if I told you that the the women's basketball plus volleyball won the tiebreaker as well. Would you switch a pick there? Oh, yes, I would. Okay. I, I would. I think that makes me feel a little bit better rather than going for a push. I probably would lean that direction. Because at that point, you're guaranteed if KU makes it to the if, – if the men's team doesn't make the Elite Eight. So at any point they lose before then, then you win. But if KU women's basketball wins even one game, then the KU men's team has to make the Final Four if you have the tiebreaker. Um, okay, one more along this line. More points scored in the NCAA tournament for KU this season. Zach Clements plus Joe Yesifu or Remy Martin? Oh. I'm going to go with Zach Clements and Yesifu. I'm not feeling great about the way things are going with Remy Martin. Just in terms of him being able to come back, I think Bill Self said it himself that Time's running out, and you're getting to the point now where, you know, you've got obviously the Baylor trip next week is a big one. Um, but Kansas State on Tuesday, you know, is he going to come back for that? I, I, that's the date I've had circled personally where it's like that's kind of the, the point in the season where I feel like that's where uh, he should come back. And if he's not back by then, then you've got three games in the span of a week. Do you want Remy Martin playing and coming back and trying to get back that week? That's kind of tough. But then you have Big 12 tournament, three games, and possibly three days. So I, I'm not feeling too positive on the Remy Martin front. So I think Zach Clement's an emergence. And then if Remy Martin, I think Joe Yesfu, I, I think that's where I'd lean right now. Yeah, it's interesting because the, the comments from Bill Self on Hawk Talk did not sound too optimistic on it, but I did no. think the comments that he gave today were maybe a little bit more optimistic. Yeah, they, they were. Um, the tone in his voice on Hawk Talk was not great. And it was <laughs> you're right, it was a little more optimistic today. And I think it's one of these things where it is just kind of pain tolerance, and we'll see. And clearly, Raymond Martin wanted to play through this and has tried to play through this, and 
as Bill Self said, he was playing on a leg and a half, which Ren Martin playing on a leg and a half is not someone that you want to be relying on when you go into the NCAA tournament just because you don't know what you're going to get. So I'm very curious to see kind of how, if any tone changes kind of between now and when we talk to him on Monday before Kansas State, because then kind of once you get into that Baylor stretch, then it really is kind of getting too close to call. He is Michael Swain. You can check out all his work, fog.net with 24-7 Sports. Michael, thank you for the time as always, man. Definitely. Thanks, Derek. Always enjoy it. All right, that's Michael Swain. Check out his work. Go subscribe, fog.net. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. We'll play the rest of the Bills Off audio, including that quote about Remy Martin. Coming up next, this is RCST. Five o'clock hour on your snowy Thursday here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Joined now by the voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney. Typically joins us on a Friday, but uh, with you know the travel situation going down to Morgantown, coming on a day early here. So, first of all, thank you for asking Coach Self the uh, Joel Embiid question on Hawk Talk the other night. And in the answer, he brought up a lot of different names about kind of the Jersey retirement, and, and we went on over some of those yesterday on the show. If, if I'm reading between the lines on the answer, I feel like Wiggins and Embiid would be yeses. It sounds like Keith Langford is actually closer than maybe thought, which I would love to see. And, you know, the one that's interesting really to me is I was digging down into the Perry Ellis candidacy yesterday, two first-team All-Big 12s, three All-Big 12 teams, a consensus second-team All-American, top 10 KU scoring presence, and the only reason he didn't win Big 12 Player of the Year is because he happened to coincide the same year with Buddy Heald's senior season I kind of feel like Perry Ellis might be a lock at this point, which I, I don't know if how far in the weeds you got into this, but I, I do remember like back when he graduated, that was a, a kind of polarizing question. That was kind of like a 50-50 debate, but now looking back on it, I feel pretty certain he's going to find his way into the rafters. Yeah, and it's hard to use the term lock because, again, the criteria would have to be loosened. But Coach Self in his response basically said, Yes, I would be in favor of seeing criteria change. It'll probably be with the next coach in here after I'm gone someday, and who knows what that means in terms of how, how deep down the road that is. But I, I think it started a conversation, and so I'm, I'm glad that you guys tossed it out there a week ago. I was hurriedly asking the question to him because whenever I take a, a topic kind of off course, he starts to look at me like, where are you going with this? So I didn't go to the links of saying, Derek Johnson and Adam Trevetta of KLWS. <laughs> we gave Rock you a hard Rock. time yesterday, but we, we really didn't care. I, yeah. I, I didn't hear it, but, but I had several people text me that said, man, you got to tune in. These guys are voting you. And I thought, damn, I figured they would love it that I brought up the topic. I probably gave him like three segments worth of fodder on the show the next day. But you got to understand how it works, man. If, if you take something too far off the beaten path, you start to get a cross-eyed look. And so I just hurriedly said, I was asked on one of our local stations the other day, blah, blah, blah. And then that way we got into it. But anyway. Yeah, we I just think- we just joked around. We were like, some, one of our one of our affiliates, some station. We were just kind of joking around. We, we didn't actually care. But no, we were thankful that you asked the question. Well, I think, I think the beat writers were too, because there's going to be articles written about this. This is going to be the next big topic. And it was the right week to ask it because – You've obviously got Wiggins and Embiid starting on the same all-star team this weekend. And the narrative will really pick up if indeed Joel wins the MVP, since that was the crux of the whole hypothetical. Um, like you said with Perry, I think there's a strong case to be made, but I won't use Locke with any of these guys because, again, 
something significant has to shift in order to open up the criteria to, to include these guys. But of the names that he mentioned repeatedly, both on the air for those listening to the show and then in our two minutes of talking behind the glass there at Hawk Talk is what, what happens is we've got this pane of glass to you know separate us from any COVID-type stuff. But then, then during the commercial break, we take our headsets off, and I'll usually ask him a few more questions and stick my ear around the glass so I can hear him. And, and he mentioned Perry twice. And so I think you're right to think that that's one that's on the tip of his tongue. And I think that Keith Langford absolutely is as well. He made a very compelling case about Keith. You know, if, if one more shot is made or three more free throws are hit, KU beat Syracuse. Langford is the most outstanding player of the 2003 Final Four. And that is one of the automatic qualifiers under current criteria. In addition to being a guy that I think when he hung him up was seventh in scoring, You've got it pulled up in front of you right now. I don't in terms of where he currently sits. But both Langford and Ellis you know, are top ten career scorers in their era. And, and both had outstanding careers that I think under the way Self described it should get in eventually as you loosen the criteria a bit. But the Wiggins versus uh, Embiid talk was really interesting. Not that Wiggins' pro career is going to get him there, but that his collegiate one season was darn near good enough to get him there as is. And that was when he was talking about the 40-point game at West Virginia, and he shared that the voting, the ballots had been cast before that final game was played, and, and had it included that, in his opinion, he would have surpassed Melvin Edgem, which I thought was really interesting stuff uh, and a great revelation on the show as well. And So I think with Wiggs, if it happens with him, it would be both a combination of a, of a collegiate career that was darn near good enough to qualify anyway, and then hopefully a pro career that, in listening to Coach Self talk about a guy who's been a career 20-point-per-game scorer, he needs to add more all-star games because there's, you know, there's numerous examples of guys that you know, have been to an all-star game, but on that merit alone aren't going to be considered you know, these legendary players. Paul Pierce obviously, you know, was an All-American at Kansas, so he goes up. He went to 10 NBA All-Star games. Wiggins is never going to likely make it to that many at this juncture in his career unless, you know, he really settles in and, and becomes that, that perennial, you know, balloter-type guy. But uh, to me, you know, if, if he could rattle off five or six All-Stars and then you put that with what he did at Kansas, maybe under loosened criteria, it is enough. But to me, one league MVP is worth eight all-star selections because it's, it's such a hard award to get. It's not like baseball where there's an American League MVP and a National League MVP. It is so stinking difficult. Look last year in the NBA. Jokic wins it, but it, it was maybe the most statistically impressive season Steph Curry ever delivered better than his previous two MVP seasons, but because the Joker had just an off the charts, triple double crazy efficiency, crazy plus minus type statistical season in his own right. uh, You know, the Joker runs away with it and and it's that difficult to do it. So I I think you guys is a narrative. And again, I want to say that this was Derek Johnson and Adam (laughs) Trevetta of 1320 KLWN uh, 500 watt awesome radio station heard round the world online (laughs) And, and at 101.7 FM, I want to make sure I get that out there. They're the ones that asked the first question. Um, I, I think it's it's a great debate, and the MVP thing being as unique as it is, and how special as that would be, uh, you know, from a Jayhawk tradition standpoint. We've got a lot of NBA All Stars, but we haven't had many MVPs. 
that that to me is enough. And to hear the head hawk say that with a pretty resounding yes in his response tells me that, that it probably would get done. question is just, you know, what the timing would be and, and how far down the line we're talking before criteria starts getting moved around a bit. Yeah, and by the way, Keith is right now eighth on the all-time scoring list, and you look at Danny, Nick, Rafe, Clyde Lavellet, Sharon Collins, uh, those are all in the rafters. Frank Mason will obviously be there. Darnell Valentine is. And then Paul Pierce is 10th. He is. The guys who are 8th and ninth. Keith Langford and Perry Ellis were both part of that discussion. Um, you know, it, it's interesting for me with Wiggins, too, because, like you said, part of it was based on the merit of him bringing him up. And I, I didn't realize that story with the Big 12 Player of the Year. I thought that was a really interesting nugget that self-provided uh, in, in regards to Wiggins with the, I, I guess, Pandora's box version of way of looking at this. Like, what does that open up if you add him in? Not, I'm not always a big believer in the whole slippery slope theory, but like, um, I do wonder if that does open the door for even a guy like, I don't know, Josh Jackson and Ben McLemore, which uh, with the case of Andrew Wiggins, again, that's so close to Big 12 Player of the Year, which Josh obviously wasn't, but you also had Frank Mason on your team, so that doesn't help that. With Ben McLemore, I don't know how close he was to winning or not winning the award that year, um, but when I look at Andrew Wiggins, he was a consensus second-team All-American. He got second team, and I think there's four different ones that they look at when they clarify consensus team. Josh was third team on two, I think second team on one, and then wasn't on the third one. And then Ben McElmore was, I think, second team on three of the four and, and third team on the other one. So it's not like that different of a career, but I guess, like, is that where the NBA career side of it does come into play and, and gets him in over guys like that? Maybe so. But boy, does it get murky if we start it opening it up to all of this. Because, yeah, right now you've got some pretty ironclad must-haves. And if they aren't there, you're not in. If, if we start saying, well, this guy's collegiate resume is 70% there, so let's now add in some professional career points. Uh, yes, that would get Wiggins over the top, you would think, much more so than McLemore or Jackson, who I don't think will ever either be all-stars. Love them both, but I just don't think it's in the cards for them. Um, but, but when you start to do that, then you're kind of piecemealing a resume together, and it loses a little bit of prestige. The slippery slope thing is, is something to be considered, and I'm not going to name names and, and throw guys out there, but if, if you knew some of the guys that played at Kansas that have lobbied for their own inclusion to be up there, you'd be surprised at some of the guys that think they belong up there. You'd also be surprised at some of the guys that aren't up there that probably won't because they fall well short of the criteria. I asked Coach Self off the air about Aaron Miles, you know, all-time assist leader, two Final Fours, and he just doesn't have the, the postseason recognition side of the ballot to get up there if you consider the high standards that all the Jersey retirees are held to in that regard. So it doesn't matter that he had 900 and some odd assists and, and was you know, a guy that, that was so instrumental in, in back-to-back Final Fours. And so, uh, But it would surprise you. I, I'm talking about like some B-listers that, that think they belong up there. And, and, and I don't mean that critically or harshly at all. I'm just saying if you start to open the door and you loosen the strings even a little bit, uh, that there's going to be a lot of guys that, that feel like they need to be up there. And while you certainly want to boast a lot of stars, you don't want to have any shine come off of the prestige of being up there because suddenly, you know, you, you've got uh, kind of a second tier of players that, that are measuring up. But the, the criteria you put out for Perry and for Keith 
as top 10 career scores. And eventually, you know, they may fall out of that. You know, it depends on how long guys end up staying now. Yeah, I mean, it's tougher nowadays, right? It, it is, but, but they're also barely hanging on. So another Frank Mason is going to come on. Let, like uh, we saw him come along and, and uh, you know, bump Keith back a spot from where he finished his career. Eventually they'll be out of the top ten. But, you know, when you look at some of the second-team All-American type stuff that you talked about, uh, where they were at in terms of conference honors for multiple years, I, I think it makes sense. So I, I think right now of the guys that don't meet the criteria but deserve to be in the conversation, it starts with Embiid based on all the MVP hype that we're talking about. Then I go to the Keith Langford, Perry Ellis line, and then I go to Wiggins uh, third, only because, or fourth, I should say, only because um, his collegiate achievements don't measure up to Ellis or Langford based solely on duration that he played. Um, and professionally, like I said, this is one all-star game, all right? It, it, let's, let's talk again when he's got five of them, and then, and then maybe you, you start to have more of a conversation at that point. But it was interesting to hear how he was maybe a whisker away from automatically qualifying anyway as a Big 12 player of the year had that happened. And that, to me, was one of the more interesting developments of that whole conversation. So I'm glad you guys brought it up. Again, heard here first on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. But, uh, but I do look forward to further discussion because I, I know in talking with Matt Tate, he's going to write something about it as we get uh, deeper into the season. And I, I think that it's going to open up not a can of worms, but a healthy discussion on how do we keep it still you know, on a pedestal of really prestigious achievement and making it in, but, but look at it from a slightly different perspective that also offers some inclusion to exceptional professional achievements. Not just a few all-star games, but, but, but exceptional MVP caliber achievement in addition to what you did collegiately. Because I think you're seeing more and more schools do that even in football, um, you know, I, I've been other Big 12 schools that, that had guys that were modest players at their respective school, but they made a couple NFL Pro Bowls or you know, a Super Bowl appearance, and suddenly they're on the ring of honor. So I, I think that we could see some modifications made, but Self left it pretty uh, up in the air as to when that might actually take place when he said it'll probably be something the next coach has to decide. And we're talking with Brian Haney. As much as I'd love to keep going over this, because I, I could talk about this stuff for hours, but KU does have a game on Saturday. They take on West Virginia and Morgantown, and this is Bill Self's worst road record among Big 12 opponents, and you combine that with a dangerous guard in Taz Sherman. KU uh, had a dominant second half against West Virginia at home, and the West Virginia record isn't one that sticks out. But certainly this feels like a far cry from a gimme game despite that Big 12 record. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And for a lot of the reasons you just alluded to, the fact that you know this and Stillwater are the two toughest road trips historically for Coach Self. And then you look at what Tash Sherman did against us last year in Morgantown, what was a career high at the time. You know that a guy like McNeil's capable of hitting five or six threes against you in a half, let alone a game. Uh, he could go off. And, and you start to think, okay, we need to really bring our A game here because, yes, it's a different type of West Virginia team than what they've had typically under Bob Huggins. You don't have the litany of big, bruising forwards like Kanate and Culver and Chibwe and all of that. It's, it's more of a, a jump-shoot 
oriented type team. They still have some size, but but not like they used to have when they would bully ball you and had these guys with broad shoulders and seven two wingspans and biceps the size of your uh, your hamstrings. I mean, they, they had some huge brute forces inside that were really tough to tango with, and, and you don't have that now. It's it's more of a, you know still pressure the ball, not in a full court pressure sense, but they extend pressure. They heat you up. They're there on the catch, and then they they try to score off of that and, and score in a half court set after. You know, off of some really good outside shooters. But I think back to the two games they've had versus Baylor and how close they were in each of them. Now, ironically, it was it was not Cryer or, I don't know, uh, Kinjo or any of the, the stars you would expect that saved the day for Baylor in both cases. It was Meyer. But if you go back and look at the game splits, it, it was a two-possession game inside of five minutes in both cases. And then Meyer put the team on his back, and Baylor escaped. And particularly in the second meeting in Waco, it was an inadvertent elbow or, or fist to the jaw as they were poking at the ball that caught Taz Sherman right in the jaw and literally knocked him out of the game. Uh, and he was having a career day at the time, and they had Baylor on the ropes. And so any team that in, in a couple of examples of, of isolated performances like that you know, can be that close to beating a top-10 team certainly – can give the Jayhawks all they want and more on Saturday. And when you consider this is always their biggest home game of the year since they don't really have a geographic rival in the league, when you consider that Bob Huggins has clauses in his contract to get extra bonuses for beating Kansas, this game literally, figuratively, and monetarily means more to West Virginia than any (laughs) other game on the schedule. So I think they absolutely are going to be loaded for bear, and our Jayhawks need to approach it that way. And I don't think there will be any complacency that sets in based on the margin of the first meeting. I think they realize that uh, you know you've been given a gift now with Tech winning last night. You got a little bit of room to to navigate here in the league standings, up a game and a half. But you give that right back if if you stub your toe either Saturday or Tuesday versus K State. So in order to make next Saturday all that it can be, it's going to be a big game regardless. Don't get me wrong, but but if you hold serve these next two games. That one on Saturday could be the knockout punch to win the league, the 26th I'm talking about. And that, that obviously you still need to take into account Texas Tech, but they could lose this Saturday in Austin in the return trip to face Chris Beard. If you hold serve, you take care of your business, you know, we could be talking about a Kansas team that, that on February 26th could go for the knockout punch. And if you do that and you win this league with separation, now we're talking one seed. Now we're talking you know, about a Kansas team that really has rounded into form uh, for, for March Madness and, and Selection Sunday considerations. There's still three games after that, let's be clear, uh, and there's plenty of chances they could slub their toe in that final week when you've got to play three games in five days. But my point is, with, with a two-game lead in the loss column right now, keep that up these next two games and games you should win, and then you've got a chance you know, to really separate and clinch at that point as you head into the final stretch. He is Brian Haney, the voice of the Jayhawks. You can hear him on Saturday. KU taking on West Virginia here on KLWN. Brian, before you go, quick message from Nate Miller. Yeah, just like the Jayhawks need their game plan to take down Huggy Bear and West Virginia, you need a game plan for your financial future and your retirement. So consider the Miller Retirement Group today. Nate Miller is one of the best guys in terms of just uh, honest He's, he's got a, a patient approach that will break down even the most simple of questions. Uh, and I'm one of those guys that doesn't know a ton about this stuff. And so you know, he's the type of guy that will talk you through anything. No question's a dumb question. He'll lay it all out in an easy-to-understand kind of way and make the right decision for you in the short term and the long term. So find out more today 
at MillerRetirementGroup.com. That's MillerRetirementGroup.com. Guys, always a pleasure. And uh, thanks again for providing great content on this show that sometimes makes its way to Hawk Talk. I'll do a better job of appointing it where it comes from next time. No, you don't need to at all. Here's Brian Haney. Cue the disclaimer. <laughs> Brian is a paid spokesperson, not a client. Brian does not endorse, and all individuals should make their own evaluation of the firm's investment advisory and insurance services. Investment advisory services offered only by duly registered individuals through AE Wealth Management, LLC. All right, that was the voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney. You can hear him on Saturday. KU taking on West Virginia, 7 o'clock, pregame 530 here on KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to RCST on FM 1017 and 1320. KLWN, depend on it. The latest meeting with the MLB and MLPA went about as poorly as everything else has gone. According to different reports, the meeting lasted about 15 minutes. 15 whole minutes. Again, like every time I talk about this, it just gets like bombastic about how upsetting it is with the MLB, with the owners, with the inability of both sides to just straight up have a meeting and discuss things and to be clear like I'm more on the side of the players here and and the owners you know are the ones who are mostly ruining this but in situations like this like this is on both people just in terms of not necessarily what you're trying to accomplish or what the resolution is going to be but just in terms of hey can we just actually talk and meet it's just outrageous to me 15 minutes According to Jeff Passan, the MLBPA apparently backed off its request in the meeting for arbitration for all players with two-plus years of service, so they took that away from the previous proposal. Um, They requested instead 80% of players go into the system. Additionally, the union requested an increase in pre-arbitration bonus pool from $100 million to $115 million. These do not seem like giant asks, like giant differences. I, I am completely lost. I'm completely befuddled. Over the idea that over these small asks, it turns into a, okay, well, that was our proposal. We hate each other. We're leaving the meeting. We're gone. We're not going to talk to each other for another week. These are small things that they're proposing, and then it just turns into a giant rift. If if every offer with a small change is going to turn into a, hey, we're pissed off, we're leaving, and now we're going to wait another week to, to negotiate... We're not going to have a season this year in the MLB. We're just not. You're going to run out of time. Now, Paston also mentioned, of course, no deal. We are, as of today, 11 days away from the deadline for the MLB that they set, the owners, that the MLB, that Rob Manfred, they set a deadline that they needed to have a new CBA in place, that they needed to have these negotiations done 11 days from now if they wanted to start the regular season on time. So basically, by the end of February, by the start of March. And this does not appear that they are even close. And again, as I said yesterday, I'm completely lost as to why this is not the situation where it's, hey, we're going to iron this thing out. We're going to meet together every day for the next two weeks. Or we're going to meet for, you know, all day today. 12 hours, and if we propose something and you don't like it, you're not going to walk out of the meeting. You're going to say we don't like that, and you're going to offer a counterproposal, and it's going to go back and forth. That's how negotiations work. This feels like to me that the MLB owners are, because they had the the, a couple weeks ago, they said that they were going to make an offer. 
and then last minute they were like, you know what? Actually, we're not going to make an offer. And instead of actually trying to negotiate, let's let's. Do you want to hire a, a federal mediator to try to figure this out for us? Knowing full well that federal mediators in the past have heavily favored the owners and and the MLB side of things in the past, and the players were going to decline that just to try to spin it positively for them and negatively for the players with PR. This furthermore feels like their attempt at basically saying, "No, sorry, you're just you're just asking for things that are way too ridiculous." Even though they're not. Again, these are small things they're asking for, and they're they're having concessions like, "Hey, we're going to pull this away. We're going to add this. It's a small ad. Like, you know, it's fifteen million dollars over thirty teams, half a million dollars a team. Is that really what is making you leave the meeting after fifteen minutes? It feels like they're trying to get to a place where they're just saying." No, this is impossible to negotiate. We have to use a federal mediator, which they know is going to favor them. It's absolutely, utterly ridiculous. I mean, it it is incredible how the MLB is so tone deaf to understanding this. And, you know, there's a part, because I love the MLB. I watch, love watching baseball, fantasy baseball, everything. There's a part of me that just, like, wishes that people stop caring. Because as much as I care about it, it, like, you almost want the MLB to be punished for this crap. And they have been in the past. I mean, it, the sport, you know, comparatively to other sports, the popularity is dropped down. Now, revenue-wise, money-wise, the league has obviously gone up from where it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago to where it is today. I just... Uh, there's no way that the season starts on time. Again, if that's the the deadline that they're trying to get it by the end of February and you're not meeting every day, you're not meeting for hours on end, you're not meeting for a full day, it's basically, there's no like rhyme or reason. It's just, hey, uh, we're ready for another proposal. Let's meet. And then it doesn't work out like this where everybody's gone after 15 minutes. And then a week later, the other side says, all right, we're ready for a proposal. There's no plan structure. There's no set structure. I asked Adam yesterday, I, I think I set the, if I said, will the MLB season be started by June 1st? I, I think we kind of adjusted that yesterday in talking to May 1st. And Adam said he thinks it will be playing by then. I am kind of to a point, maybe this is overreacting to all this news today. I'm to a point where I do not think there will be baseball going by May 1st. And honestly... By June 1st, I'm still up in the air. Uh, this this whole thing is a joke. This whole thing is ridiculous. And honestly, like I, I just want to be kind of done talking about it because it doesn't seem like there is any movement either. Every negotiation is not getting this any closer to where it needs to go. It's just making it further apart. I don't know what the solution is, but certainly it, it doesn't appear to be anytime soon. And that is very much a shame. We've seen the NFL, uh, you know, go into big CBA negotiations. We've seen the NBA go into a bit of a lockout that costs some of the season. But the the too many often times that this is happening with the MLB and to the level that it is occurring is absolutely remarkable for a business, for an industry, for a sport that is worth billions of dollars and they're acting like a bunch of five-year-olds trying to negotiate who should get the lollipop at recess. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017.
1320 KLWN, klwn.com, the KLWN app. Coming up next, we'll get to our RCST replay.